0: Hello and welcome to Spectology, the Science Fiction Book Club podcast. I'm your host, Matt. And I'm Adrian. Hey, Adrian. Hey. Spectology is a book club podcast where every month we read a science fiction or speculative fiction book Talk about it and hope you read along with us We have two episodes a month typically and then some interstitial episodes in between Our first big episode is a pre-read before we read the book, providing some context Our second big episode is a post-read and that's what we're doing right now The book this month is The Waste Tide by Stanley Chan uh, In English it's actually just Waste Tide, there's no Uh, the on it Cool. Which, which
1: is a preview for some of what we'll be getting into today. <laughs> nice.
0: Yeah. So um, as uh, as you may know, if you've listened to our pre-read episode for this book, um, I, re- I read this book in Chinese and Adrian read it, the New English Translation that's just come out by Ken Liu. Um and uh, so, you know, although we certainly have checked in with each other throughout this process, and I read some of the English translation as well, it's, we're going to have uh, a fun time, kind of going back and forth and talking about the differences throughout. Yeah, comparing notes a little bit on yeah. what what was it that we read?
1: Did we read the same <laughs> book? Big philosophical question here. <laughs> very, very true. Uh, so I, think I, maybe, I think I think yeah. I cut us off just to make sure it is. It's waist tied by Stanley Chan slash Chan chiofan Um So that's the book this is this the post read so it's full spoilers that's right from here on out listen to the pre-read if you want to like learn more about the book without spoilers that's what the pre-read is for that was cool we talked a lot about chinese like literature and like matt has background in that so it's actually like a really cool interesting like i learned a shit ton listening like talking to you matt so it was a really
0: fun conversation well cool so yeah and um so full spoilers, like Adrian said. And the other thing, of course, is that we should do some content warnings. So yes. in, our, <laughs> in our pre-read episode, um, we neither of us had actually read the book at all, and we were not aware of the content of the book. We have since learned through reading the book that there are actually a lot of things that need content warnings for this book, a whole lot. So you right. want to... And Start we'll talk that,
1: about them. I think a few of these, too, we'll talk about more or less. But, like, you can also count these as content warnings for, like, the episode that we're recording currently. Absolutely.
0: We are probably going to talk about a bunch of them. Um. So In, in more or less off, detail. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. First,
1: first off, which is more in the Chinese version
0: than in the English version, interestingly enough. Yeah. Lots of sexual assaults and rape. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, just to say a little bit more about the difference there. Um, one of the biggest differences, uh, that I observed between the Chinese and English version is that the Chinese version has a lot more explicit sexual violence than the English version. Right. So in addition to the fact that some scenes are made more intense in and are, are more intense than the Chinese version, there's at least one scene that doesn't even exist in the English version. Interesting. Um, interesting Interesting. and we'll talk more about this when we talk about translation
1: Um, that is to say too like it's not that this doesn't exist at all in the English language version though it's like much dampened but still there (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's right Um, Um, but also in addition to like sexual assault rape there's just a general like awful amount of, like, brutality, torture, violence, body horror. Like, this is not a book that shies away from any form of violence, Um, including, Mm -hmm. like, violence towards children and, like, child death. That gets more, like, kind of discussed off screen, just to be clear. But, like, it's a really brutal world that these characters live in and that, Brutality is often depicted like on screen, even with some of our viewpoint characters um, taking part on both ends of it. So I think that it is um, one of the more brutal books
0: that we've read for this podcast. Definitely. Yep. There's also um, discussion of some other stuff that could potentially be very unpleasant for some people, uh, including suicide there's a certain amount of ableism that may be present in a bunch of the text. Yeah. Uh,
1: And that's something that we will, I think, talk a little bit about exactly what that looks like and like what, what it is. Um, it's more philosophical, I think in some ways than like on page, but it's there. Uh, and then also like, I mean, it's a very like classist hierarchical society, like that's there. And I think there's the chance that we might, Like, as we talk about some of like cyberpunk and the like ableism inherent in cyberpunk, it's hard not to also talk about the like transphobia inherent in some of that. Like, they kind of go hand in hand in some ways. So, uh, I don't think that's particularly like present in the book, but like that might be something we touch upon in this episode. So, I kind of also wanted to, I I guess, mention
0: that before we go in. Um, Yeah. And definitely worth knowing, you know, this book um, is not necessarily. You know, like in favor of all these things, but these are definitely <laughs> no. things that you will encounter, <laughs> right? <I think. laughs> yeah, no, I, I would not say it's in favor of
1: like, essentially. I mean, we can talk maybe a little bit about some of the ableism stuff, but like beyond that, not, not at all. Um, with that, we should, I mean, like talk about like, I mean, I'll just give my short review it, really dude. quickly. I, I mean, with all that said, I fucking loved this book. Like, this is <laughs> my, I think. Uh, I would, I would have to tally it up and actually look back. But, like, this is definitely, like, one of my favorite of, like, new books that I've read for this podcast. Like, books that I had not read before. Like, this just fucking took me by the throat and, like, drug me all the way through the book. And I was, like, often in shock and, like, feeling very uncomfortable as it was doing that to me. But also, like... I I just fucking loved it. I loved the writing style. I loved the story being told. I really enjoyed some of the ways that it like played with my expectations as an American, given that there are like American characters in it. And and also, I mean, something like it's sort of one of these, you know, we talked about this in our last bonus episode, these sort of like 10 minute in the future, like ultra unreal stories. And like I, I really like this kind of story generally, like I've talked about this before with, you know, noon improved Rami Futch, or Sorry to Bother You, or these other things that we've mentioned in that episode, and I won't go too deep into, but Like I fucking love this kind of story and this is just like such a great version of it. And I really like that. It's this version with like a, you know, fairly different perspective than I take on the world. So I was, I was hugely impressed with it. I'm so glad we read it. I hope that it gets like more kind of buzz than it's gotten. Um, so far, like I haven't heard a lot of people talking about it, especially compared to like three body problem or something like that. But I think that it absolutely deserves more people reading and talking about it. So what about you, Matt? Uh, how was your experience? So you had a very different experience from
0: I did. Yeah, I, I, I did have a very different experience, I think. Um, I think that um, I am really glad we read it, and I probably did not like it as much as you did. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say I didn't like it, but I think you know there are things about it that I loved, and there are things about it that I didn't love. Um, I think that it is uh, really good that this kind of book is getting written in, in Chinese, and it's also really good that it's getting translated. Um, one of the things I really like about this book is that it is ambitious. Yeah. Um And I really, really appreciate that a lot. I think that um, it doesn't always hit the mark, but just the fact that it's trying is worth celebrating. And I, I really, I really am glad that this is getting more attention in America. Like, this is a really great choice for. A guy like ken leo to translate and he did a great job doing it i think mm-hmm. the translation is very impressive that's another yeah. thing i would say is that like um this is the first time i've really gone deep to like look at the machinery of how ken leo translates and it's it's awesome He's, he does a great job yeah,
1: I mean, you know, I obviously have not read the. I, I you know, for I don't read Chinese or speak or anything, so I have no knowledge of how the translation fares as a translation. But like as a piece of art, like as a piece of literature, it's fucking awesome. It's so good, yeah. <laughs> and so it's really good to hear that it's also good as a translation. That it like works on both wavelengths is just so phenomenal.
0: Absolutely. It definitely does. Yeah. So major props to Ken for this. Totally. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think um, as far as the specific things that I did not didn't like about it, I th- I'm sure we'll get more into the details as we go on. But um, yeah, I think, maybe, maybe like what's your, you know, sort of like top level, like
1: what's one thing that really worked for you and one thing that did really didn't work for you? Oh, yeah.
0: Well, so like I said, there are a lot of things that really worked for me. And one of them was ambition, the ambition of the book. Another thing that really, really worked for me, um, is the, uh, politics of the book, I would say. Um, the book has a pretty complicated, uh, set of relationships, um, between different political and economic classes, um, that represent people, not just within the same political grouping, but like across political groupings and within political groupings. And it just does a much, much better job of, Rep- of like in the context of a uh, fun and exciting story representing a pretty complicated and subtle set of relationships that are that's a lot cl- that ends up being a lot closer to the reality of like global economic culture like the mm-hmm. the, the, the right. you know more specifically I mean like you know you have Americans and Chinese people and you have people of different economic classes in all the different in various different groups um mm-hmm. and the author does a really like stanley Chan does a really really good job of of like accurately portraying a lot of different viewpoints that are governed by a lot of different kinds of material interests um that emerge from different places and then collide with each other and like ha- what happens then you know it's really impressive and and like books that have stories that are this action-filled like don't usually do that like they, they're not that subtle you typically you know they just don't have the time for it um but this book does a thing that didn't work for me as well a big thing that comes out to me is i felt unsatisfied with mimi's character um mm-hmm. in english her name is mimi in chinese her name is saomi her character i to me was a little bit too um similar to like a, a joss whedon uh female uh superhero character yeah um a little tropey And a little um, reminiscent of like River from Firefly, for instance, or (laughs) um, or, uh, you know, other similar characters. It's actually I mean, I think it's a relatively common cyberpunk trope, actually. Yes. Yeah. Um, And that to me was something that I had a hard time with, especially given the much heightened levels of sexual violence in the Chinese version. Um, interesting
1: oh yeah that is interesting that that would
0: actually like put that in a very different light yeah um that did not work for me as well i i don't think that there was i i think like i trust that stanley chan is is like is like shooting for something that isn't that and so Mm -hmm. like i don't think this is like a inevitable um structural problem with like his work or something like that but i don't think he succeeded at, at like really hitting the mark with this this part Right.
1: Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I think I would 100% agree with you on each of this point, like, you know, I loved the ambition and that's part of, I think, you know, I think a lot of this is probably like you and I are going to agree more or less on any part we liked or didn't like. And what's going to be different is like how that affected our overall, you know, like we're going to have all the same like, uh, constants, but the like equations we plug those into are going to, you know, like mine's going to involve like more division and yours, more subtraction or something along those lines. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't even know what I'm saying at this point. I yeah, no, that's that's really interesting, especially the point about Mimi, because Mimi was a character who for me, like I really liked the way she was handled in the first like half, maybe even two thirds of the book. And it was really towards the end that I I began agreeing with you on her character. Like she seemed to like, like lose more and more agency. And it was unclear to me exactly to what degree that too was like based on gender what degree that was based on class what degree you know it's like there's sort of these tropy elements but the tropy elements like i don't know if i'd fully agree with you that she's like a, a river tam type or whatever but i i i see what you were like what you were saying with that i think that dampened my enjoyment less but like i do wonder talking about you know that some of the context around that was changed, like might have also really changed the way that enjoyment, you know, like what I was able to dampen like what dampened and what didn't to what degrees. Um cool. Well so that's yeah. a you know, I think now we should dig in a little bit like deeper into yeah. some of these. You wanna things. you wanna
0: dive dive into this, I don't know. Trash, into this trash water pool. Stew. this waste. This waste this time. is a
1: hard one because like the you know we were talking before like there's just so much to talk about in this book that we're there not really going to get even close to all of it and we already had like a much longer than average pre-read and a bonus episode that unlike most bonus episodes was also essentially devoted to this book <laughs> and it's like still yeah. not enough for us to be able to like have a full single yeah. post read so I think that's maybe another testament to like the ambition of the book and just like oh, yeah. it deals with so much and like, you know, it deals with some of it better than others. Right. Like this, this thing of like density we've talked about before, like it has more yeah. depth in some places than others, but like it's trying for all of it. Oh, and yeah. Like, it, you know, it's, it's interesting the rare, for all of it.
0: It's the rare sort of action story that has informational footnotes. <laughs> right You know what I mean Which yeah. this book does In both Chinese And in English And they're different <laughs> they're Because different. it expects you To know different things Depending <laughs> right. on which one You're reading <laughs> On which
1: audience <laughs> you are Yeah <laughs> Cool. So actually, one thing I kind of wanted to like touch on really quickly, I don't know how long this will take. I don't think long, but it's just sort of the like, we have this whole episode about, you know, genre and ultra unreal and like Chinese science fiction. And like, so we've talked about this a lot and sort of like, maybe thinking a little bit about like, what lineages exist here? Like I've mentioned cyberpunk, like we obviously talked about the ultra unreal. I think it fits within that, you know, there's this clear like eco-fiction thing going on although the mm-hmm. degree to which that is like in lineage with american eco-fiction is like unclear to me particularly because i don't read a lot of like eco-fiction or, or qui-fi or whatever it's called these days mm-hmm. um but that's really interesting i mean like reading this one of the books that i kept thinking about both in terms of like content and also in terms of writing style was the wind-up girl mm-hmm I kept going back to that book as this is particularly in the way that it's told from like a lot of different points of views, like any one of which points of views could be like the antagonist to like another point of view. And some of them right. are just like selfish and in it for themselves. And some of them are actively against each other. And some of them like, right. don't even fucking know the other one exists for like half the novel. Um, and like that, writing style as well as being about this impoverished area yeah like i thought a lot of that book while reading it i think this is better than wind up girl frankly i I enjoyed it more a lot more
0: yeah definitely there's another a couple of things i agree with those things i would also say that the lineage of like dystopian anime is pretty big dystopian anime and manga is huge i mean akita is all over this book i think and uh so is ava So
1: in the English version, there's a section where, like, they name the, like, the big Buddhist, (laughs) like, killing robot. (laughs) Um, Like, they name it Ava after Evangelion in the English version. Like, they explicitly just do that. And I was wondering if that was in the Chinese version. I don't remember what they... Right. It's at the very, it's like after Mimi has inhabited its body and they like move it at some point, they like, I'm pretty sure they like call it, they they call it Ava and they call it Ava based on like an old like TV show with like monsters. And it's like very clearly Evangelion.
0: (laughs) Yes. I remember a clear Ava reference. I may be thinking of that exact thing. Are there references? Could this have been in the? Tra- yeah, I just don't remember. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. totally could be.
1: But no, but that that like the Japanese anime, especially kind of post
0: apocalyptic type anime, is like all over this for sure. The other thing is that 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 I wanted to say as far as lineage goes is that I think that there's an enormous amount of like just straight up nonfiction, um, yeah, that that was used mm-hmm. to construct this book, mm-hmm. um the uh silicon island or silicon isle or whatever the the place where the story takes place is a fictional place but it's based very heavily on a real place that is located where the fictional place is located but is not an island mm, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh the real place it, it's so based so heavily on it that the real place is actually the name of the real place is uh, homonym in chinese for the name of the fake place um, oh, they sound the same There's so a lot they,
1: of that kind of like punniness yeah. that happens in Chinese literature isn't there. Cause you've mentioned that a yeah. few different times of like, Oh, well, yeah. this word is like a pun on this other word.
0: Yeah. 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 And the other thing is that like the, a number of the sort of like things that are, that happen in the book are, are sort of seem to be loosely related to things that have happened in the real, in real life. So for instance, um, international, uh, um, environmental organizations have written and published reports about the real place that Silicon Isle is based on. Mm-hmm. Some of those reports are in Chinese. Mm-hmm. And uh, I checked one out by, I checked a Greenpeace one out in Chinese. <laughs> Interesting. And, uh, just the language of it just sort of reminds me, the way that they list the different materials that are used, the way that they go through the different types of pollution in the environment, it just reminded me a lot of the language of the book. Oh, that's really fascinating. Totally. And And the final thing is that in real life, a thing that happened to this place, it's called Guiyu, Guiyu, the, the real place, um, a thing that happened a few years ago in like 2012, 2013, um, is that a new industrial park was built and a bunch of the, uh, the sort of recycling activity was moved from being scattered all over the place around the town to uh, the uh. industrial park. And mm. the name of the industrial park, I can't remember what it is exactly, but it's like a, a phrase that comes up in the book. It's like interesting. circular economic, the economic special economic zone for global circular economy, or something <laughs> like that. It's like this exact same phrase that that comes right. up at one point when Scott is talking about, or maybe not Scott, but somebody's talking about. Right. Uh, you know, that's really interesting
1: because this book in Chinese was published in like 2013 or 2014, and right. obviously around like that time. before that. So yeah. So I also the, you know, talking about Chinese nonfiction, another book that I just thought of like constantly while reading this is a book that like you recommended to me called The Corpse Walkers, which is a Mm -hmm. book about poor people, largely like migrants or people living in villages in China, um, written by a Chinese man who like goes and interviews them and then essentially like rewrites
0: their stories in like, yeah, you know, um, it's, it's narrative nonfiction. It's by a guy named Liao Yi Wu and he, uh. It's an amazing book. It's one of the books I recommend to people the most about China. I mean, if you liked this book and you want to read
1: more about China, that is the first book I would recommend is The Corpse Walkers. And, and I'll, I'll
0: obviously, we'll link to everything we talk about in the show notes. Yeah. That'll be top of the list. Another book that that I'm reminded of, um, Liao is, is is a book, I don't know at all if Stan Chan would have read it, but I certainly agree that it, it reminds me of it as well. Another book that I don't know that he would have read or not that remind that I'm reminded of is factory girls. It's another book that I recommend the most factory girls is like narrative nonfiction about young women in Southern China in like Guangzhou, relatively close to where this, this story takes place who are migrants who are very poor and their lives and just following them over the course of years. Uh, Leslie Chang is the author. It's an amazing book. One of the best, like not nonfiction books about China. The fact that it's about women, young women in particular, I think one of the one of the things like the contra- the contrast between the young women depicted in, in that piece of nonfiction and the the single young woman that we get in this book is, is that kind of contrast is that it's one of the things that should, that sort of makes me uncomfortable with the way Mimi is portrayed. Totally. That's really good context. I'll have to pick
1: that up because I just like was so into Corpse Walkers and the way like You know, and you know, I think part of why I like that too is I've talked about a lot about secondhand time by Svetlana Alexievich, and it's like a very similar kind of like project that the two authors are like taking on in those two books. um, Even though they're about very different times and places, so you know that's obviously like that kind of narrative nonfiction about like working people and like people living their everyday lives is super, super fascinating to me. I always dig it.
0: Yeah. If people are interested, there are other books like that about China that are also good. China Mm -hmm. candid comes to mind, but anyway, like that's another topic. (laughs) We'll get to more of that later. Cool. So,
1: um, yeah. So I think, you know, maybe like the other, lineage thing here is this sort of like cyberpunky yeah. thing. And like I was actually surprised like how cyberpunky it got by the end. Like it yeah. felt like it got more and more cyberpunky as the book went on, which was really oh, yeah. fascinating. Um and you know, again, we're like in full spoilers mode here, so we're going to actually talk about some of the ending. Um but like The AI slowly taking over Mimi through this kind of like virus nanobot thing Mm -hmm. and like this slow realization of like, Oh like Mimi thinks of it as like Mimi Zero and Mimi One but actually like Mimi One is this like outside entity <laughs> Yeah who is Who is this like you know like real Figure of this like woman who invented CDMA and but also Was <laughs> it's like an extra such like, a strange choice To use Hedy Lamar as the like person the Avatar like, of <laughs> Such a good choice like I know it's Such kind a of choice awesome. <laughs> that like like an American author wouldn't have made I don't think right like Like if if like a Neil Stevenson is going to use like alan turing or, or whoever right and like this is the sort yeah. of like kind of like sideways adjacent
0: choice but
1: is such a fucking brilliant
0: well it's, one. it's a much better choice than then i mean the the it's such a it, it, it was really interesting and very strange and unexpected <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because like the Hetty lamar thing is like she isn't just a representation of mimi one she is that but she's also kind of just um like there's this sort of representation there's this like 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 uh, encapsulation of hedy lamar's consciousness that that is hedy lamar's consciousness that is sort of separate from mimi one Mm -hmm. and mimi one like has total access to it it's it's uh, that is encapsulated within mimi one and mimi one (laughs) sort of uses it as like a meat shield as like a as like a shell in in, like just like she uses um like Mimi zero as a meat (laughs) shell yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) right And, and so it's like Ah, I I really liked all of that. That was cool. (laughs) I also, I just
1: loved the way that like... Because this is a thing, you know, I like Ian Banks does this, Ian M. Banks in the Culture Series. Like you'll often get these, like, you know, everyone has these kind of like neural nets installed in their brains that kind Mm -hmm. of like augment their like brain abilities. And like this Mm -hmm. idea of like, you know, adding nanobots or like neural nets or like adding whatever sci-fi bullshit to your brain to like make your brain better is this like very common. I feel like cyberpunk or kind of like post-singularity You know, like far future type sci- sci-fi th- theme, and every time I've ever read it, my first thought has always been like, why would those be the same two conscious? Like those would be two different consciousnesses. Right. right so right. for this book to like full on do that and have this thing of like, well, yeah, they kind of like interact with each other, and they're kind of both like mirror images, or like they're kind of the same thing,
0: but also not. I they thought bleed into like, each other. Right. They're not they're like different heaps that are sort of like where like, like the edges lo- the are the edges like shoved, shoved up, up together. together right. The and like at times mix, the
1: edges are like know? pushed further, or, yeah, you know, yeah, or yeah. closer. Yeah. And so that I just thought was fucking brilliant. I love the way it worked out. And I love the way you kind of like, get drips of information so like you figure it out before Mimi does and like but in this kind of very natural way just because you're getting drips of different information from like both different characters as well as kind of like the ever-present like omniscient narrator who like will info
0: dump stuff and and like the fact that she needs more energy to power this thing is awesome (laughs) really cool (laughs) that's a good touch I mean it's sort of you know and and they only they only have access to this like weird limited supply of extra energy for her she can't just like eat a lot right it's like not enough to eat a lot <laughs> well again
1: that also that actually reminded me of Avon evangelion immediately where yep. like a big thing is like they have five minutes our power supplies yep. once they get disconnected from the grid and like i always love that where it's like yeah you have the super powerful thing but like it's
0: like shitty to use. Mm-hmm. Like it's
1: hard to use. It will burn yeah.
0: you out to use it. I think Ava and Akita are all over this book. Hundred like percent. All over hundred you know, percent. Like Akita too. I mean, I think Ava's maybe more obvious in a lot of ways, but I thought yeah. of Akita a lot because of the the sort of similarity between the powers that Mimi gains and like psychic powers. Oh right. Totally. Totally, like the fact that she can kind of like project her consciousness like through the air and like take control of other objects, right through you know? the
1: network or into machines,
0: or right, whatever right, right, right. I yeah. mean, obviously, the sort of explanation that we're given is is not that she's psychic, but it just ends up working works the a same lot way. like that stuff, you know. You
1: know, this is a conversation that we had a little bit I, in an episode that, that that isn't going to come out for a couple of months, but like about like psi powers and yep. how those like m- morphed into. Like we still have psi powers in science fiction. Like they used to be all mm. over golden age science fiction. And like we still have them in science fiction. They're now just like network powers instead of psi powers. You know, it's like yeah. the
0: veneer has changed. Yeah, but the it's like a different flavor though. Same. And it's kind of interesting to think about what the di- change in the flavor means for the change <laughs> in the thing. I mean, one of the interesting thing, another, yet another really fascinating thing about this book that is also, I think, a cyberpunk thing, is that there's something, there's a lot of mysticism kind of baked into a lot of the discussions in the book about technology and about like the world, mm-hmm. mysticism or religion. I mean, like there's you know, depending yeah, on which oh, part totally. we're talking about, there's a lot of like sort of hallucinations or like you know, thinking about God or religion or the or the sort mm-hmm. of mean the greater meaning of things, and all or that like, stuff reminds you know, me of yeah
1: caesar's parents and the way that they you know choose like their religion affects like the way they raise him and like the you know the way they actually like treat their own bodies and this kind of stuff like i really enjoyed that
0: yeah oh yeah and like there's the this is another really great thing about the book is the way that it like very carefully and sympathetically portrays a lot of different kinds of religious beliefs interacting with each other yeah totally it's so much better at doing that than like 99 percent. like i, I don't know <laughs> yeah. what you'd even compare it to because it's in a different league of doing that just way better <laughs> right you know you've got on the one hand you've got um boss law who who you know is the is the the head of the law clan and one of the sort of you know people who's kind of an antagonist but is also portrayed very sympathetically he believes in uh sort of local chinese folk religion um which, like, even calling it a local Chinese folk religion, I think that's, like... Well, a but thing it's that- more complicated than that, because he
1: actually is a practicing Buddhist, but right. is kind of pressured into doing these,
0: like, local Chinese folk religious, right. like, elements. Exactly, exactly. Um, that's a classic, that's a classic sort of situation for an educated person. Like, an educated, sort of, like, wealthier person who's, like lives in like a you know place that's far away from the capital to be Mm -hmm. in chinese history um and like his but what's what's really cool it's complicated of course but you know we're given this this sort of version of um the folk religion that is perhaps from a certain perspective less sympathetic than the buddhism that he himself takes more seriously Mm -hmm. but just because the 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 shaman woman whatever is yeah yeah. they call her a Uh, witch in the english translation just because she's like a a total scam artist basically (laughs) right like a liar they call i guess they call her a liar but but like despite that you know i mean i think we're not and and, you know we're not meant to think that the waste people are um total idiots for believing as they do in a lot of sort of superstitious stuff I, i i think that we're meant to sort of I don't think I think it's a, a very sympathetic portrayal of people believing in in, in lots of different things. I agree. So yeah. even in the in the sort of ceremony that that the witch runs, where Mimi and um, Lo son are the uh, boss, Lo's son are are kind of in this in this ceremony together. Even in that ceremony, which goes of course horribly wrong and and like you know is kind of was kind of a fake from the beginning because of the witch. Mm. It's still there's still a sense that you know thanks to the fact that Mimi actually does like quote unquote real magic. Like thanks to the fact that there is this sort of actually miraculous result. There's this weird thing that happens where y- it almost like lends credence to the superstition because of right. the way it actually turns out. Right. You know, and, like and, and she might
1: have been wrong, but she was also right. The witch.
0: Yeah. And then and then like, you know, I almost get the sense that that's kind of how some of um, uh, Kaizong's. Uh, thoughts mm-hmm. you know end up at by the end of the book like i he, think so of course comes from this like evangelical fundamentalist family or whatever mm-hmm. but like and, and but he doesn't believe in that stuff himself he believes in like the laws of history or whatever the um right. but by the end of the book i mean he's seen su- he's seen some shit and yeah. like you get the sense almost that he like it's just his mind is more open to, like, whatever. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, like, you know, he's seen some shit and, like, the eye that he saw that shit with, he, like, lets degrade and, like, keeps in the state yeah. in which it saw it. And it's like, I mean, that's just such this perfect metaphor at the end of it for, for exactly the ways in which he's, like, you know, a little bit less sure of like that he knows everything <laughs> yeah. a little less like sure of himself while also being like more sure of himself in other ways um i guess like more humility but also like more confidence yeah very true more confidence for sure yeah. um that, that ending
0: to- too. that prologue <laughs> <law. laughs> post
1: post post phosis or whatever it's called that was really
0: cool <laughs> yeah i did not think that i didn't i i sort of thought that something would happen to mimi But I didn't think it would be Kaizong who would be the one to do it.
1: (laughs) Oh, do you mean the ending? Right, right, right. Yeah, Yeah, that was really, that was really interesting. I mean, like there were somewhat, you know, this is moving away from some of the themes we're talking about right now, but like I was thinking about that before recording today because I finished the book yesterday and I've been thinking about it a lot and You know, that Mimi zero, like Mimi herself, like, you know, in so much as there's like a true anybody, like the kind of truest form of Mimi is the one who's like, no, like pull this trigger. Like, I don't want to do this anymore is like in some way gives her this like agency through this process. But like also in another way is this like kind of fits in with this, like, tropey, like, you know, women being the, like, you know, impetus for, like, men to do their, like, real stuff, um, which also shows up, you know, I mean, like, kind of Mimi is this object for Kaizong, Caesar, you know, kind of whatever you want to call him, um, he's given different names throughout the book, uh, right, like, and she's often this, like, kind of damsel even while she is going through her own adventures and has her own stuff going on like it's not full-on like damsel in distress mode like that's how he views it that's not how necessarily anyone else views it right Mm -hmm. um and that is like i think i think there's some amount of like that is his moral failing that the book judges him for a little bit like i don't think that's necessarily like the book being like oh she's this damsel and like he should be taking care of her but then at the same time there is um What's his name when um something when uh the Li Wen. the yeah Lee won um he you know his sister is actually that, right? like his sister, who is like brutally
0: killed by knife boy, is actually just like his whole reason for being yeah. is like by you the know, way this is her. another uh one of the differences between the Chinese and English versions is that in the Chinese version, his sister is raped um before she is killed interesting um and the language is very similar she's raped in a very similar way to the way that mimi is raped which is not by a tentacle machine but by knife boy right right yeah and this is where we should like these this is a big
1: difference between the two books between the two or the original and the translation I, i don't know exactly how to talk about this right um but like in the Chinese version, I guess, according to you, like, because you told mm-hmm. me, like, oh, there's this rape scene, like, be aware. And, like, I got to it and passed it. And it's like, where where's the rape scene? Like, it was terrible. It was awful. Yeah. But, like, I did. I thought it was explicitly yeah. not a rape scene.
0: And, yeah. like, it turns out, you're like, you've read both scenes and they're right. actually different. Oh, they're very different. So in the English version, for instance, this is very explicit. So forgive forgive me um you if you, if you don't want to listen to some even more explicit discussion of what happens. Um, right. We then- might yeah skip forward the, five minutes skip skip forward a bit in the english version there's a line that says she like was thankful that he didn't actually pull down her pants or something like that right not only does that not happen in the chinese he he pulls down her pants and he does and there's a lot of very very specific language about the things that he does to her mm. um it's very explicit um when i first read the the knife boy raping Mimi scene in chinese i was like i had to put the book down it was like way too intense for me and Mm. i like and it kind of came out of nowhere as well it's like the beginning of this part two of the book yeah and i didn't expect it at all um right and and i was i was really kind of turned off by that um and I had a very interesting and complicated reaction when I learned that the English version like massively tones it down because I can totally see why you would want to tone that down. Like, I thought it was a bit much. But then it kind of changes how the entire rest of the story feels because in so many ways, that scene is this pivotal moment in the story that explains why a lot of the characters do the things they do afterwards. And the ferocity and insanity of that scene is kind of like the justification to many of the other characters for the things that they do afterwards. And the ferocity of the scene involving Lee one's sister is the justification for the things that he does for his like kind of being fucked up. Right now. This is like, interesting because it, so, you know, I obviously only read the English
1: version and unlike you, like I had some warning going into it that it was going to be like this really brutal chapter at the beginning of part two. Um, because you warned me, which I, you know, actually appreciate. Um, but my reaction to it was still like, holy fuck, this was like super brutal and kind of out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. But also like it, it seemed to me like, you know, there was no like obviously like penetrative sexual assault or whatever. But it was like an incredible like mental torture scene where mm-hmm. like, you know, Knife Boy is still like getting off on her pain in a very like explicit way, where like he's hooked up to this machine that gets him off when she feels pain, right? Like, mm-hmm. like that it's like n- her neurons are like transmitting like her right. pain, and that's getting you know turned into his pleasure, and like that's it's fucking brutal. It's it's awful, and it was, you know, I didn't I didn't think that like a a, a you know more. I hate the way I'm about to phrase this, but like traditional rape scene would have like made that any more brutal or made that any more like, Oh, like I need that for the justification of like how insane the characters are the the insanity of this. Like, I don't think it, I don't know if I agree that it
0: changed it that much for me. Obviously I only have my own experience. Yeah. I mean, I suppose, um, like it doesn't have to, You know, like I could imagine, but I, maybe it's just the contrast, you know, when I read the English version, it, it inevitably felt like this sort of sanitized version because in some sense it is. Um, Totally.
1: Here's a question. Like, what is there like that, that. That tentacle machine that like, you know, transmit, turns her pleasure into mm-hmm. his or her pain into his pleasure. Does that exist in the Chinese no. version? No,
0: no. no it's, it's oh, funny. so it's been like drastically altered. Yeah, yeah. The scene It's the, that as near as I can tell. The other interesting thing is that the typical page of the translation hues very closely to the original. I checked in at a lot of different points throughout the book just to see if this such and such a paragraph was, was how, how such and such a paragraph was handled. And in general, Ken Leo is, is very faithful to the text. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he does a really good job of being faithful to the text and the rhythm of the text and the color of the language while also like making it sound good in English. But that scene, I mean, it's totally different. It's That's not like a yeah. little bit different. It's completely different. Right. And the other scene involving the other rape, which isn't even a rape at all in English, uh, is Mm. also totally different. And as far as I can tell, those are the only scenes that are that different. Interesting. Okay, cool. So it's a very interesting choice. And I'm so conflicted about this, right? Because like on the one hand, I, if I were writing the book, I would not want to have such an explicit scene in the book because I don't think you need it um, in general. I don't think you need that kind of thing. Um, On the other hand, it's because it's such a big change and it's like the only such change it it sort of sticks out and i i i really wonder how i feel about this choice because it does change the book you know interesting
1: i mean it does but so does translating it into i mean like of course i guess i i i don't i do not think that I, and i don't think that i feel the same way that you do. Like, I don't feel conflicted about this. Like, I'm glad he made the change. Like, yeah. I think I, here, here's the way I'll put it. I think I enjoyed the book a lot more because this change got made. And the version of the book that I read was the version that I read, right? Like that it yeah. did not have these like explicit sexual assault scenes yeah. and that the scenes were still brutal and bad, but that like the yeah, way yeah. that they were was changed. Um, Cause obviously like, it's not particular, like I, I'm not super squeamed out by like violence and fiction, right? Like, obviously we we missed out, like, I'm okay with that. So, you know, given that I, I felt that I I was glad the change was made purely from a kind of like, you know, I don't don't know, like hedonistic or utilitarian standpoint of like, I enjoyed the book more because of this change. And so I think it was a good one from that perspective. And like, yeah,
0: I suspect that I would Like if I had read the English version first, I suspect that I would feel the same way. Right. And this is the Chinese version is like a theoretical construct to me. It's not only
1: a thing that I have not read. It's a thing I will never read. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Like I cannot and I'm not going to learn how to read Chinese before I die. Like that's just not going to happen probably. So like and if it does, will I read this book in Chinese? Like, no, probably not. So like (laughs) it is a purely theoretical thing to me that like I know exists, but like I will never actually
0: like touch or feel. Yeah. Um, I I guess I'll put it this way. I think regardless of the choice in this particular scene which maybe on balance like makes a lot of sense to us there's this general sense i have that because of the slightly different tone of the english i wonder to what extent the overall vibe of the english version is kind of slightly more woke than the chinese version and like the choice to do that if, if like in as much as it was done and in as much as it was conscious right. is a very interesting choice to me. And I, I sort of wonder about that choice. Like, I don't know. What do you mean by woke? I mean, I kind of don't yeah. love that word. It's so often sure. used
1: pejoratively. Like what, so what, what I do don't, you mean I by it I mean, like, I mean, I know you don't, sen- but yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious about the specifics.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, sensitive to, um, sensitive to like different non-cis male perspectives i almost said cis white but that's the wrong word <laughs> <laughs> right, um so right, for right. in this case it would be sensitive to like the perspectives of people who um you know are women or people who are poor or people who are um perhaps differently abled or people who are um, right, right, you know right. in any other of the countless categories that may potentially have an issue with some of the themes and text of this book i mean there's language i'll give you an example there's language in the chinese version some of the like choices of some of the like turns of phrase in the chinese version are sort of uh, traditional so uh, here's an here's a very specific example yeah at some point at the end of the book um uh lee one calls himself a coward Mm -hmm. i don't know if you remember this he's like really upset with himself uh oh yeah because he wants to kill he he wants to kill Knife Boy, and he right. like also doesn't want to kill a Knife Boy, and so he calls himself a coward to try to psych himself up into killing yeah. Knife Boy. He does it too, and
1: he's like dangling over the bridge and that kind of thing. Like in the right. end, he like can't actually like be the action hero. Yeah, yeah, ways. yeah.
0: the 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 fact that at that point, basically, like he's remembering, he's like thinking about Knife Boy's uh rape of his sister, mm-hmm. and like there's this. There's this very traditional kind of masculine role thing that he's doing, which I think just kind of comes to the fore a lot more, given what has happened to his sister in the Chinese version.
1: So I so disagree, given that like that was the very first thing that I thought then was like, wow, this is so like this. It was it was actually surprising to me, like, oh, this is this kind of trophy, like everything he's doing is for his like dead sister who is like brutalized Mm -hmm. and, you know, like. Obviously kind of raped off screen like it didn't happen on screen, but it was clear that like that was implied and that she had been killed and he saw her death. I mean, like you don't need the rest of it for like that to be this like motivation for him. So like, I I don't know, I'm just finding myself like like that that came off in the same exact way to me of like being like I don't know, regressive or whatever right but like yeah. I, but like being very traditionally male okay. well that's
0: good that's good yeah. yeah I mean I I that is kind of how it came off to me and um I guess I'm glad that it, it makes it, it's less uh I don't know if it's what what the right word is it's it's um it makes sense to me that that would come across in both ways. But I just sort of was, was something I was thinking about when I was reading. Um, right. There's, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, too, because I, of course, the other, this now gets into my own head. Like when I read Chinese, when I like hear certain words, the associations I have with Chinese words are not always the same as the associations I have with the corresponding English word. Right. So I was going to say for the, the word for coward, um, which is like... Uh, you know, it, 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 to me, it, it sort of reads as more the 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 word that is used in Chinese involves the character for dick. Um, it's kind of oh, like soft dick or something like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And Right. And so it's like coded slightly differently in my head. It like reads more as like a... Even though like you don't have to be like a misogynist to use a word that involves... But it would be a, like you know what I
1: mean, like it's like using the word like ballsy or something like that to to show the like uh, like to show courage, right? It's like you can say right. courage, or you can say ballsy, but it's like what That's if the right. word courage just like right. included the like reference right. to testicles or calling
0: it. a woman you don't like a bitch instead of calling a woman you don't like an asshole, yeah, or yeah, you know something else. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If right. that sort of language is used in the Chinese version, and I wonder to what extent. Right. Um,
1: Yeah. And I don't I don't doubt that there is this thing going on to some degree. And I don't doubt that some of it is due to English generally being a different language. Right. And like some of it is due to like Ken's conscious choice. And like honestly, too, I have no idea to what degree, you know, especially given that the scene is like so different. Like I do wonder to what degree that is like Ken wholesale rewriting it or like doing it with Stanley Chan or like how that like, you know, happened that's a very good like, question editorially for how that happened you know yeah, i mean I no you clue. know was that like the english language editor saying like no we need to change this right like that's also a possibility there are more yeah. people in here than just um you know ken and, and yeah. but i Stanley. i will say
0: based on what i've heard um ken leo say in in, in in interviews when talking about some of his other translations notably three body problem um he has um kind of a of of partly his own initiative, at least, um, made big changes to some of other works that he's translated. Um, Interesting for other reasons, not for this reason, but like in Three right. Body Problem, for instance, um, he wanted to um, change the order of things that happen in in the in the the revolutionary. Um, this is like a spoiler for that book or whatever, but like <laughs> whatever, yeah. The like um, rev- uh, the the cultural revolution uh, section um was in a is in a different place in the chinese version of that book um and so he went oh to, really yes and so he went to leo he went to leo's he's like hey how would you feel if i made the suggestion of changing the order and leo's sin goes to him oh my god thank you that was actually my original intention but they made me <laughs> change the censors made me change it <laughs> right because that being the like
1: immediate beginning to the book is like, is one of the best <laughs> parts of the book, <laughs> uh, yeah. but also like for an American, like as an American being like someone who is like vaguely aware that the cultural revolution happened and like that. So, and like, you know, I've learned more since reading the book and everything, but like that being up front was key to my understanding of the whole book. Right. Yeah. Like I needed that yeah. to be there for me to understand the rest yeah.
0: of the book. So I guess the point is, I know, I know that I don't know what's in Stanley Chan or Ken Leo's mind, but I do know that, um, Ken Leo has, has made this sort of right. big change in other like editorial and changes and he, he, he did it in, 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 consultation with the author. Right. So I would that,
1: assume given yeah. like what I've heard from both of them, that yeah. like anything was done in some way in consultation with the yeah. author. Um, I'm just very curious about like, cause I love process. So oh, I'm yeah. very curious about totally. the process and like, hopefully you can get the chance to like ask one or both of them at some point here. Um, but no, it is, I mean like, you know, it is an interesting choice. Again, it's a choice that I'm glad that got made. And I think maybe the last point I'll make on that is that like, You know, I do think it's important, especially when, like, reading or or looking at any piece of art to, like, not try to, or at least one of the things I try to do is not try to, like, privilege, like, stuff that came earlier or stuff that Mm -hmm. came later, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I think we can, especially as, like, sort of, like, fans, like, not as critics, but as kind of, like, nerdy fans and fandom, try to, like, find the correct version of a text and try to find the, you know, like canonical or like fucking what, whatever you want to call it, but the like right version of a text. And I think it's important, like not, you know, it's like, okay, so it was published in one version and it was then published in another version. And like, you have this experience of you came from one to the other. And so your experience of that, I'm not trying to like, you know, erase at all, but like a broader kind of critical perspective, experience of it I do think it's important to say like you know I I don't think one is like more correct than the other like I don't want to like privilege one above the other or say that like oh well like Ken changed it so it's not as real like that in particular is a thing that I I, and I don't think you're doing this but it's a thing I want to be very clear that like I don't think you should do (laughs) I think that's
0: bad criticism (laughs) I could not agree more I feel exactly the same way I think there are two different pieces of art here that were made by different methods. Um, mm-hmm. and they have some similarities of course, but I mean, mm-hmm. I had a really wonderful and fascinating experience. Um, you know, enjoying at least parts of both of them. Um, and like, I can see why somebody might want to do that. I mean like, Hey, like I, I, I got a lot out of comparing the two. It was really fun for me. Yeah. And they're, the, the, that, that only works because they're different and they're both valuable. Um, and anyway, it's, it was a really fascinating exercise, especially because of these differences and to think about like getting to see the inner workings of how Ken made some of the choices that he made, even though I don't know why, of course, cause I'm not him and I haven't asked him, but getting to see how that happened was really cool. Yeah. Very, very interesting. No.
1: And, and like, you know, I am envious to some degree of like, <laughs> like you have this ability to have, you know uh, this fuller experience than I do. Well, we we
0: shouldn't privilege that either. Right. Because like like,
1: fair, fair, totally, totally. But like you have this ability to look into the process in a way that I don't. Right. And like, as as someone who loves process, (laughs) like, you know, I would love to like read the documentary about the, like, you know, translating of the novel (laughs) and like you get closer to that just by the, by nature of the way that you read that. So that's cool. Did you want to say anything else about like translation, maybe more generally or philosophically? You know, I know this is something you and I have talked about wanting to talk about because we're both like into language, obviously.
0: Yeah. I mean, there are so many things to say about it. Right. That's a big topic. Um, <laughs> it, you know, I almost want to leave that as a as a separate topic for another another episode. But there's just maybe like one other thing that I'll say about this book. It's not really even a comment about the translation so much as it's a comment about the Chinese version. I'll just say a little bit about what I think about Stanley Chan's Chinese. Cool. I think that he's a better writer in Chinese than a lot of Chinese sci-fi writers. Um, he is. He has like a a bigger vocabulary, and his decision to use dialect throughout mm. the book is totally fascinating. And like he does these really interesting things with dialect, which by the way work very differently when they're presented in Chinese than the way that they work in English.
1: Yeah, that was clear to me. Actually, can you talk a little bit about how it is different in Chinese? Because I feel like this is something that I understand a little bit through the linguistics work that I've done. Like, you know, dialect, topolect, language, like the ways in which these are like fuzzy categories.
0: Yeah, so I think actually that Ken's use of the word topolect is correct. Um, topolect is a word that I believe was introduced by the Sinologist Victor Mayer in uh, a paper that he put out like in the early 90s or the late 80s or sometime around there. I think it's a more accurate way of referring to what are different languages, basically. Right. But it's a way of referring to these different languages that more closely mirrors the way that they are discussed in Chinese. Um, right. Well, I mean, and the use of topo, like topography, like of 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 shape and geography
1: as the sort of, you know, it's like it's such an inspired choice. Like I like I I had never heard the word topolect before before reading the yeah. prologue to this book, and it immediately knew exactly what it meant. It's such yep. a good
0: word. Yeah. The critical thing about topolects is that they are um in they 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 are they they are not clearly defined except in geographic terms. Right. And so top can be mutually unintelligible or perhaps they can be mutually intelligible depending on which places we're talking about right so if right. you imagine like two top that are like one town over from each other two places that are like one town over like well i guess even in this case they could be mutually unintelligible and that certainly does happen but like You know, it depends on the place.
1: More often than not. Yeah, more often than not. Towns not next to each other are easier to
0: understand each other than towns far away. Depends on your point of reference. You know, if you are from someplace far away from those two places, you know, tough luck, (laughs) man. You're probably not going to understand them. Anyway, that's a typical thing in in Chinese. The word that they use is fengyan, and fengyan is a word that means more or less top elect, it means the language of a place that isn't the capital. Mm-hmm. You know, it's generally used in reference to like the capital or like the cultural center or whatever, the government language or something like that. Right. And so like many fangyan are many tablox are uh, understandable if you speak standard Mandarin. Right. Um, many are not. <laughs> it Depends right. on which one. <laughs> and right. so that's it's like a incredibly useful word.
1: So, so the, I was actually yeah. curious, like when you mentioned sort of like the ways in which like Ken might have made this book like more sensitive if the use of topolect was one of those ways.
0: Yes. Because like that's a perfect example, actually, maybe the better, much better than whatever I was saying before. Um, the idea basically is that like we have different choices when we translate a word. There are like multiple English words that might mean the exact same thing as the Chinese word, but like one mm-hmm. of them is more politically correct than the other. So which do you choose? You know what I mean? And right. so I, I, I have a sense that Ken being a sensitive guy who, who might like want to sort of attract more readers rather than fewer. And like, you know, he has his own biases and whatever, like may have chosen to use more politically correct language when he had the choice, um, right. without right. actually changing the meaning of what's, what, what's in the book.
1: Right. And I think, I think that, you know, I was really happy with the use of the word topolect, both for like you know i think it's more politically correct and that is good like i think political correctness is a good thing um but also that it is a really useful distinction because the word dialect and language it's actually like, more accurate exactly like dialect and language get you know they have political connotations like maybe i'll just do the really like linguistics 101 what everyone learns in their intro to linguistics course but like one of the things that like a student will ask pretty early on is like, what makes a dialect and what makes a language or like, well, you know, how do we know languages are different from each other essentially? Like when is a language, a language? And the answer that like a a linguist, like someone who studies language scientifically will answer is that that's not a decision we make. That's a decision that governments make. Like we tend to view language as a political entity And like, obviously, like we work within the real world that involves politics and we also just use the shorthand of different languages because that's easy. But in like everyday speech, the question of like, is, you know, black vernacular English a different language or a different dialect from American English is not one that we can answer because it is not a question for linguistics. It's a political question, ultimately. Um, And I think that is like really, you know, like we can say black vernacular English is a language. It is like a valid language that should be viewed as such. But is it a different language or not? Is like not the thing we can answer. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really useful to understand with this stuff is that these like whether to call something a dial, whether to call, you know, Shanghainese like a dialect of Chinese or a different language from Mandarin like that's a politically loaded decision, right? Yes. Whether to call Taiwanese like Chinese or a different yes. language is a politically motivated decision that different people will like make for different political reasons.
0: Although, uh, although I will say this, there's, there are two language, the, the language Taiwanese differs from the Mandarin that is spoken in Taiwan. There right. Are, those are right, actually two right. languages. The, yeah. that's, and that's, that's another thing entirely. Um,
1: right. But that, that's what I meant was like the Mandarin, you know, yeah, or the, the, sorry, the, the, traditional Taiwanese versus like Mandarin and like, are those both Chinese is like one Chinese and one not is there, you know, are they both Taiwan? Like, right. Those are all political questions. They are not like scientific linguistic questions. And so the choice ultimately to use a term that is, has less political bullshit associated with it. And also does just a better job of describing like the range of both dialects and languages that like exist
0: is a really smart one for a translator to use. Yeah. And to be clear, a lot of the top elects that we're talking about in this book are mutually unintelligible. Right. Um, Which is to say that like, you know, the average person who can speak one, cannot understand another if it is spoken at them. And that is why Kaizong is there. Like, he's a translator, right? Right, Because he speaks a bunch of these different topolex, like a bunch of these different languages with air quotes. (laughs) Yeah. So one quick last thing that I was going to say about how the dialects work in the Chinese version is just that um, uh, everything is written in Chinese characters. And so uh, dialects, the way that dialects use the way that top elects use that's um you also
1: have your your background and everything the the
0: way that the way that top elects use uh the way that top elects are written is a fraught subject yeah uh, because it is also political um this book, because it is intended to be read, um, is written in like the most <laughs> common and widely read language, and so it is written all in uh standard Mandarin characters, actually not all and this is interesting okay. well so and this it, is maybe like
1: like standard Mandarin uses simplified characters right is that what you're what you're
0: saying it's using simplified characters or is there something no different it's a different distinction um, okay it's written in uh standard mandarin characters which are also simplified um at least the version i got you could also get a traditional character version of the book i'm sure that that exists oh Um, interesting okay um i mean it's a relatively easy transformation um it's relatively one-to-one yeah okay mostly sorry 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 this is
1: this is the stuff i don't fully understand so i'm so
0: however um dialects are, are, are tricky because sometimes dialects are written in particular ways that differ from standard mandarin writing mm-hmm. so stanley chan i assume since he is from shanto uh speaks a local dialect the lo- local top elect and as a result some of his choices of characters are like particularly evocative of like i mean to me a a, a person who can read Chinese but who is not from southern China the Chinese Mm -hmm. I learned is not southern is not I didn't learn Chinese in southern China anywhere anywhere in Guangdong province to me a lot of the particular characters that Stanley used for certain words are like particularly evocative of like southern China like there's certain (laughs) words that you could write with more than one character and like he always tended to write them with there's all these words and there's multiple things that he's doing, but like a lot of the very specific choices he made about what characters to use are very evocative of Southern China. And they're also evocative of different top elects. but critically since they're all characters, um, the pronunciation of the writing, the pronunciation of the character is not like directly tied to the character itself. And so, you know, you, when you read it, you don't necessarily know how to pronounce it in elect form, right? So if you're reading it and you don't know how to speak any of these topolects, you would just pronounce it as though it were Mandarin, um, Mm -hmm. because you wouldn't know how to pronounce it otherwise. And that creates this strange effect of like, you're a little bit defamiliarized because you're, you're sort of seeing characters used in a slightly different way, but you don't actually not know what they mean. You know, exactly what they mean probably. And uh, with some exceptions. Right, right. <laughs> it's it is just a very strange thing
1: you can do with the like Sino languages that you can't with right. Like and and with Japanese non character. Right? Yeah. So
0: there are Japanese names that occur in the book because it's a Chinese book. My inclination is to pronounce the Japanese names as Chinese words in my head, like when I'm reading them. Right, right. Because they use Chinese characters, and not all of them I even knew how to. Like, okay, I'll try to give you a, a concrete example. So the the typhoon, hurricane, or whatever at, at the end of the book. Yeah. It's called like Wu-Tip in, in the English version of the book. Okay. That is one way to pronounce the two characters it is written in. I would never have known to pronounce those two <laughs> characters "wutip" tip because that's not a language I know. Right. I would pronounce those two characters Houdia, which means butterfly. And so I read it as Hurricane Butterfly oh which, which is evo- very which, which right. the name of which is evocative of Zhuangzi and like ancient Chinese stuff or whatever so it's like right. a cool name to pick but
1: also has kind of like butterfly effect things which kind of works yeah, yeah yeah with the end of the but
0: novel but I so but it's like so different from like in English when you write a foreign word it's like oh you've written a foreign word I don't know what that means but I can pronounce but I can it I pronounce pronounce it. yeah exactly right. but here's Where the is, exact opposite here's the exact opposite like I knew what the name of the hurricane meant but I couldn't have I mean, I would have assumed to pronounce it in Mandarin, actually. Right. God, so that's interesting, so fascinating.
1: Right? It is. Oh, I love this. I'm, I'm super into this. <laughs> God, yeah. that's really fascinating. Yeah.
0: Cool. Anyway, so the Chinese is a cool version. Like, if if you do read Chinese and you are interested, I it's recommended. Like, check it out. Stanley Chan is a great writer. Did you just pick it up on Amazon? Like, how did you get it? Uh, yeah, you can.
1: Okay, cool. Not you can all get the-
0: Chinese books can be gotten in that way, but... Right. Um, And you had the ebook, right? Yes. I do not have a physical book. Cool. Cool.
1: Just, just curious. Cool. So, you know, I think one of the things that we, I mentioned, I think in the bonus episode and like, is the sense in which like the Chinese, both fiction and nonfiction that I've read. So like segueing from language here, um, has been like, I've always been impressed with like the like way that it tends to think about and engage with class and like granted i haven't read a lot of Chinese fiction or nonfiction and what I have is the stuff that's been translated. So there's like all these levels of biases going on here, but I've still like it's every single one. Like I've, I've constantly noticed like the way it thinks about class is very like explicit. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that both in the context of like, obviously, I mean, to your point, um, early on in your like mini review, like the, the politics or like power structures, of the world that this book is set in are like very well developed. Like you get this sense of all these various power structures, you know, you have the different clan bosses, but you also have like, who's actually running the clan versus the boss themselves. And that might be different in different clans. And then you also, you know, and then you have the three clans who are all vying for power and like the degree to which like a three clan system is a, you know, like a stable one, (laughs) you know, I mean, kind of goes back to like the warring three kingdoms period, blah, blah, blah of China. Um, But also like, like there's that. And then you also have the, you know, beyond the clan system, the natives versus the like migrant workers and the way that like, you know, to me and you, like they would like, oh, they're all Chinese, but to, them it's like okay they're not ethnically different but they're like topographically different and they have these different topo topolex and they you know just like the fact of like some move to a place to like work for very low wages while others have like lived in that place and like are exploiting the labor of the people who moved there for low wages um and then even you get the sense that like different clans treat the different waste waste people the different migrants differently And like, that's really interesting, right? Like they, I don't know if this is true in the Chinese version, but in the English version, the Chen clan always refers to, and this happens like in a really kind of subtle ways at different times, but like the Lu clan, the Lo clan, owns their migrants and they always talk about the relationship to their migrants in like words of mm-hmm. ownership in some way or another while the chen clan is always spoken to in terms of like a, a a like employee employer or maybe sort of like more surfy or something like that but it's not in terms of ownership and it would be like these really subtle ways of like you know Like Mimi is still owned by boss low or still owned by the Lou clan. So we can't hire her. Right. Like stuff like that, where it's like, they're almost like code switching, like in the middle of the sentence and talking about the same person. But it's like, well, her relationship to like this clan is this type of relationship and to this clan is this other type of relationship. And I, I don't know, like all this stuff was really fascinating to me, really well developed. And, then I also want to talk a little bit about like the sort of like more global and like bring the Americans into it and stuff. But I kind of wanted to like mm-hmm. get your, like your thoughts on this stuff first. Chinese class. Yeah. Cause yeah. it's the stuff that like I can read in this book and be like, Oh, this is really fascinating in a really well-developed world. But like, yeah. you know, I, I'm curious of like your both having lived in China and also having read the Chinese version of this novel kind of like reaction to this stuff.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm no expert, but as a fan and as an interested person, I, I, I have, you know, as a uh, fan of class, <laughs> as a fan of <laughs> I, Chinese I know. science fiction and of China. I mean, you know, I would say I'm right. a fan of China for sure. Um, I, I'll say a few things. Okay. First of all, so migrant workers is a very big thing in China. Mm -hmm. There are literally hundreds of millions of people who can be described as migrant workers in China, Um, and this sort of social phenomenon of migrant workers is something that everybody's familiar, everybody's like intimately familiar with, in Mm -hmm. one way or another. Mm -hmm. The idea of, especially the idea of the sort of relationship between somebody who's of a certain place and then migrant workers who come to that place looking for work, that relationship is extremely sort of visible and obvious and, and, and everywhere in China. And it's a relationship that people talk about all the time. It's, you know, kind of almost, I don't, I mean, it, I hesitate to make an analogy here. Right. Uh, but like I mean, maybe, there's certain kind of obvious ones that... Right. If you think about British class, right. the relationship between lower class and upper class people, um, if you think about like the way that that relationship is depicted in like old stories, stories from like the Victorian or mm-hmm. Edwardian eras or something like that, You know, Mm -hmm. you might get start, you you sort of start to have a sense of like how this is just something that's in the world. And like everybody sort of is aware of this, this, these sort of complicated relationships that can emerge from this. Right. You know, um, the idea that somebody who lives in a certain place who's like a local has a complicated and like fraught economic and social relationship with migrants from outside of that place that come to work is, is a, is a commonplace and it also still needs to be discussed a lot because it's really important and it affects so many people's lives. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, just for, for example, the, the, the real place that Silicon Isle is based off of has this issue, right? Like there are locals who run recycling businesses in that town and they employ migrant workers from other places. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that relationship is something that they will live with every day. You know, they're, they're, the people they're interacting with are perhaps from far away and maybe don't speak this. They didn't grow up speaking the same language, you know. And mm-hmm. every year comes to the holidays. Everybody goes home to the place they're from if they can, if they can afford to. Right. <laughs> and and then, then there's this sort of, you know, layered on top of that, there's this rich-poor distinction, which is different. Because, mm-hmm. you know, typically an economic migrant might be thought of as somebody who is— not well off. But depending on the situation, depending on the, uh, the the location and the job that the local migrant might have, or depending on how successful they are and whether they've become a, an entrepreneur or not, um, local migrants can do well. They can manage to sort of do well for themselves. One of the things that they often want to do if they are doing well is get a local household registration. In other words, right. get some kind of new um, political status as like, the resident of a new location. Well, I and mean, this is worth off. just
1: being really explicit about: is that like unlike in say America, where. Any American citizen can move to any state or within any state with like like there's no travel restrictions in America for Americans. Like that is not true in the same way in China. Correct. Right? Like like I can go and I live in New York City, but I can easily go and work in California. Like that might not be true from province to province or even city to city within China.
0: Yeah. And these restrictions, there are a number of restrictions, and they they're basically they're based on two things in general. They're based on Um, sort of immediate politics. So for instance, if there's something, you know, very often like people aren't allowed to just go to like Tibet or Xinjiang Mm -hmm. or Hong Kong, right? You can't just, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of places in in the area governed by the People's Republic of China that there is just, just never is freedom of movement, period. Right. Um, But in general, other restrictions are based on where you're from. So where you were born, basically. And so Mm -hmm. if you're sort of making some money and doing better for yourself, you might want to kind of get that changed. You know what I mean? You, so to speak, you might right. want to get your registration moved to a different location that has better access to better schools and better medical care. Cause schools and mm-hmm. medical care are also based on, you know, where you're registered and stuff like right.
1: that. I mean, it would be like if you were born in Alabama, like you needed a permit to be able to like move to New York city instead of just a fucking plane or train ticket. Yeah. And, and of course, and it's via, like easier than a visa is my understanding, but like depends. harder,
0: you know, it, right? d- it depends right. on, on what you're doing. But the and it also changes. I mean, the, this is right. these, the laws that relate to these are called hukou. You may have heard mm-hmm. that term in the news. It, it comes up sometimes in English. But, um, you know, the 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 fact is that a huge number of people move without doing it completely legally. There's a lot of gray areas and there's a right. lot of like tolerated stuff. Right. And the toleration can change on a dime, you know. Mm -hmm.
1: And I think in that way, it's a lot more close to like less close to like British social class and more close to like migrant workers in America from Central and South America. Right. Right. Yeah. And like, especially in the way that like a lot of people do this, like with a questionable legal status and do it, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and also just the sense of like, it's a really complicated relationship. Like it's not just a rich, poor relationship. It's not just like a ownership (laughs) relationship Mm -hmm. or whatever. Like it is kind of in like, okay. Yeah. The British don't like own their servants, but like there is some weird stuff there. Whereas like in America, it's a lot more focused around like people moving to where there are jobs and sending money back and
0: like maybe themselves moving back and forth, or maybe trying to get a permit to stay. Um, yeah, and the other way that it's that's the American analogy is useful is when you consider the different language and different culture aspect. Yeah. So right. when you have somebody moving hundreds of miles uh, and they don't speak your language, and they sort of show up and they're not there explicitly legally, but like you know, you, you a lot of Chinese people from certain places, I've I've heard people say that they. Think that the um, migrant workers that are, you know, coming to their city are changing the culture of the place. Um, yep. That's a, a line that will be familiar to Americans, certainly, right? I mean, especially over the last fucking four years, <laughs> right? Like. <laughs>
1: And again, just to the point at which like this stuff can change on a dime. Yeah. I mean, even in the Obama administration, it like, you know, was really bad at the beginning and became a lot more like permissive towards the latter half of his administration and like that stuff, you know, and the people who exist as migrant workers, both in China and America or wherever. I mean, one of the weird things about it is they just have fewer political rights and so having a character who is essentially like a union organizer in this novel was like really fascinating to me. It was really fascinating to me the ways in which like, you know, both he was, you You're know, talking about like, Lee Wen? Yeah, Lee Wen, Brother Wen. Um like both the ways in which he was you know cuz he's like not a fully sympathetic character and like they're, you know, he also is doing this kind of like essentially like organizing the again like waste people i kind of like even though it's obviously not a pejorative term in english like i almost hesitate to use it as if it like is because
0: it is such a pejorative term within the like world of the book if you think of it this way in chinese the more literal translation would be trash people Calling somebody a trash person is not nice.
1: (laughs) No, no, it's not. It's not. Um, But organizing the migrant workers to, like, essentially be, like, a fourth clan in some ways, right, and trying to represent them at these clan Mm -hmm. meetings, um, you know. On the one hand, good, like, pro-unions over here, right? But on the other hand, like, you know, he is also doing it for these very, like, selfish reasons of, like, bringing down the clans as opposed to, like, helping... The migrant workers right and it's this kind of like like his yeah. whole thing here is he wants political power for like fucking over boss low more than anything else and that's a yeah. very you know fraught thing that was one of the parts of the book where like I would you know kind of wondered how I felt about the politics not in terms of like internal power structures of the world but of like the politics of the novel itself of like is it saying that like all union organizers are kind of necessarily like You know, because because that's a common theme in American politics is this idea that like unions are like more corrupt than corporations are like unions are like bad political power structures that are all about power and are like bad, bad, bad for all these reasons. And obviously that's a very like motivated thing. And if I read in an American novel about a like essentially union organizer, whether or not you're using that term, um. Doing it selfishly and like, you know, just wanting power and all this stuff. I'm going to assume that's a political point about unions generally. And reading this book, I realized like, I don't know, like here, I don't know if it's actually maybe a thing where like you can just have that character because like they're a lot more, you know, it's the thing of like, you know, if you have like one character of a certain type, it's a trope versus like lots of characters right. of lots of different types, then it's
0: just like humans. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so the the standard bias, the standard political bias in, in cultural products in China is against anyone who wants to uh, jeopardize uh, stability. Uh. And you will, you will notice that in this book, there is no character who has extreme desires, who ends up well <laughs> who like ends up in a good place by the end of the book right there's no like person who wants to like enact big change and mm. sincerely wants that and and is passionate about it who ends up like a lot of times in american stories there's this like implicit bias in favor of the revolutionary or in favor of the like lone hero who like wants to change the world yeah he tends to be more not, lone hero right but you're right yeah this book does not i mean to some extent there's like a safe version of that, that the book kind of upholds, but it's just not possible to publish a book in China that is about somebody who wants to like break down the system, whatever right. the system is like, cause th- whatever the system is in the book, it could be a metaphor for the real government. So whatever, you know, right. you can't do that. Right. Um, so you that's a, that's an implicit bias here. Like you've got somebody in the person of Li One, you've got somebody who wants to take down the man, right? Even if the man is just like a corrupt clan, it's, mm-hmm. you know, you can't let him win. It, it, like yeah. letting him win would be something that wouldn't really be, would be difficult to pull off in a Chinese <laughs> novel. that That's so got interesting. Published. That's so interesting. So it's like a totally. It's like
1: a bias but it's a totally different <laughs> you, know, yep. you know it uses some of the same trope elements but for a very different yeah. That and this is this is why I wanted to bring it up because I'm reading it and I'm like oh I'm reading it as this kind of like reactionary like anti-union thing and I realized like that's me bringing my like very American perspective to this and what I expect out of like you know especially most science fiction being fairly like right wing libertarian esque. like you know that's what I expect out of American science fiction yeah. um, being like oh what,
0: it, what what is it actually trying to tell me because i don't i don't know yeah. there's another fascinating thing about lee one um which is that he's very very well educated um mm-hmm. so the character for his name the one character for his name is actually the character for like literature and writing and education and, like oh. it's, it's a character that's it's a character that's very like um it's like a sort of it's just as he is sort of high class like i don't know if the erudite right does the english version mention the fact that he was like number one in the gaokao in the college entrance exam um it it doesn't get into the
1: specifics but it does say that he did very well on the college entrance exams and went to like essentially one of the top colleges or universities in china he went to like a famous university yeah it's very it's very kind of coy about it though
0: so, it, I so wondered if it, it was more explicit in the Chinese version. Not actually. much. I think it's just a matter of using the words Zhuang So, like, right, no. And in, I, in I think it the, just said college entrance
1: exams or something along yeah, yeah. those lines.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, Zhuang is a phrase. So, like, China has a long history of meritocratic examinations given to educated <laughs> youth um, to determine what their career will be. And, and like, thousands
1: of years of history.
0: Yeah. Um, back in the Tang Dynasty, if you were the first ranked candidate in the Imperial examination, you were given the title Zhuang Yuan. That is still a title that is given today to the person who gets the highest score in all of China on the college entrance exam. That is what Li, Li Wan did. He he did oh, that. Oh, so that is
1: not made explicit. No. So he's That's like, cool.
0: he's not just smart. He's supposed to be this like, I mean, it's, it's clear, I think probably in the English version that he's supposed to be a genius, yes. but he's like, he's a, he's not just a genius. He's like, a sort of orthodox type of genius. He's like a mm-hmm. a, a standard trope of genius guy. Right. You know?
1: Right. Because these college entrance exams, they're a lot more comprehensive than like the SAT, is the SAT or the ACT in America.
0: Right. Like they're a much bigger thing than the American. They're like a bigger the Amer- deal, American. for sure. I mean, they're not. Yeah, they're definitely a bigger deal. I mean, they're an incredibly big deal because they're one of a tiny number of factors that gets you into or doesn't get you into a college Mm -hmm. like your score on the gaokao the college entrance exam is like almost the only thing that matters as far as getting you into college and what college you go to is incredibly important in terms of getting you a job right if you go to what's called like a, a famous university um which you can only do if you do well in the gaokao then you can get whatever job you want and if you don't, then there's a lot of like things will just be closed off to you. I mean, I don't I don't want to say it's more extreme than it is in America, but like for right. adults, it can be hard to remember how intense college fever is for adults who don't yeah. have children. It can be hard to remember how intense <laughs> that
1: that stuff is. <laughs> hey, Hey,
0: <laughs> right.
1: Well, and we did talk about this in our Romy Futch episodes about the way in which like, you know, college determines class in America. Yeah. And it sounds like there's, there's some
0: similarities to that for sure. And so well. Lee one uh, the result of all this to me is that like the, the vibe of Lee one is, is this like, It's it's very transgressive for somebody who is like the national Zhuang Yuan who like scores number one on the Gaokao on the college entrance exam. It's super transgressive for that person to end up working with trash like that's insane. Like to be a migrant worker, essentially. Yeah, like he has to become a migrant worker. Like he's clearly he's clearly like there's something wrong with him, I think is the Mm -hmm. is the either there's something wrong with him or there's something right with him. And I think we <laughs> end up on one of those rather than the other. <laughs> right, right. Interesting. Okay, that's
1: that's really fascinating that stuff. So another really interesting thing about this novel is that like in so much as there's a protagonist, which like granted it's not like a traditional sort of like, you know, single protagonist point of view style novel, but in so much as there's a protagonist, it's Kwizong or Caesar or I don't I don't know how you pronounce his name in Chinese, but and he is not like, like he is American, right? Like the, the, the protagonist of the novel is an American born Chinese person of like Chinese descent, but he was actually born in America. Actually like the, the English actually makes that,
0: um, they, they refer explicit. to him as an
1: American all the time in the Chinese version. Okay. Right. And then,
0: but there's like, a lot of tension there.
1: Right. Exactly. But then you also have another character in Scott, uh, Bradley? What's his last name? I forget. Something like that. I don't know. You get a lot of his point of view and him thinking about Chinese people and Chinese culture and like that stuff was really fascinating to me. Like at times I felt like I was getting dragged by the novel. (laughs) You know, like, oh, you have all these fucking stereotypes of us, do you? But then like also the interesting thing was, you know, I feel like you know, to, to pick on someone who is another cyberpunk author, like you get a lot of cyberpunk fiction that has like the one Japanese the character, token Asian. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And like, usually it's handled terribly. Like it's yeah. not at, like, and they're trying to like be this like, Oh, different cultural perspective. And it's just, it's bad. And like at best stereotypical, and at worst actually racist. Right. And there's a
0: lot of William Gibson novels that involve Asian
1: characters. Right. I haven't read his novels, so I have... But it's an interesting turnabout, right? right? Like, Because William Gibson right, has novels exactly. with, with Japanese characters all over the place. Right. And well, we, we, and again, so does Neil Stevenson. He sure. loves referring to Japan and using kind of like weird, outdated language to do it. That's really problematic, but, you know, whatever. Um, the But like... The thing about Scott as a character, it's not a turnaround and then like, oh, ha ha, let's use all these like American stereotypes. Instead, it's a turnaround that is a really good like psychological profile of a certain type of American who is himself using stereotype, right? Like it's this totally different kind of turnaround. And it's just like I was really one pleasantly surprised by like how well the kind of american point of view was like understood and represented but then also you know and and then also him as this kind of like economic hitman and this sort of like these questions of globalization and You know, again, there's this sort of like there's this class within China and then there's also this global class of like China being sort of like a second class country compared to America. And like those relations, those power relations between countries being an important plot point in the novel was also really interesting to me.
0: Yeah, I was really ready to not like the portrayal of Scott in this book, but I was really surprised by how how well I think, um, Stanley Chan handled it. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's just really tough whenever you have a situation where like most of your characters are from one cultural background and then you got like one character who's not, and, Mm -hmm. and you're, you know, you're also not from that. Sure, sure. But, but like, you know, the way that he wrote this foreigner, what to him is a foreigner Mm -hmm. was very good. And it's not easy to do that. And I, mm-hmm. I also really enjoy like, you know, he could have written Scott well and had Scott be less sympathetic than he, he is. He's not like the most sympathetic person, but he's a person who, you know, we don't I don't I didn't end up hating Scott by the no. end of the book. I, I and I feel like neither did Kaizong. Kaizong pitied him, perhaps. Right.
1: Yeah. Like Scott could have been the villain, capital V villain. And like, it's definitely not.
0: And instead, his portrayal is closer to that of Boss Law, Wu Chung the head of the Law Clan, like who who certainly is an antagonist, but who also is a figure of pity in some sense, and who like is rendered very sympathetic by by being given the time to talk you know more than once about why he does the things he does even though or like how he justifies the things he does to himself even though he may mm-hmm. also to some extent recognize that those justifications are flawed i mean that was a really cool move that the that the book took which is to say that all the characters that were sort of antagonistic were given the space to give us the justifications they give themselves yeah and they then all also did the thing where they recognized that their own justifications sucked, but like couldn't get rid of them anyway, <laughs> <laughs> which is a great move. I mean, people do that, I do that, that's the thing, yeah. Oh, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: so yeah, I just, I you know, I was really impressed by that. I think that you know. I don't know if I ha- like I-, I came into this wondering, like, oh, am I going to have a lot to say about the sort of like global class relations? And I feel like I-, I-, I don't a whole bunch except for that. They were. You know, this book is just good with power structures. Yeah. Well, like some. it takes a very right uh, political power structures. But let's say like it takes a very like nuanced view of political power. And one where like political power and authority are like different things and like Mm -hmm. power in one place is not power in another place. And that like power is in some ways really fragile. Yeah. And like it, it recognizes all of these things. I don't know, just it and, and writes a story that uses those as like important components in the story in a, in a really, fascinating way like it's not just that like oh uh, you know i feel like sometimes i'll read fiction that understands that like power structures exist and it will just be like they exist and like maybe potentially bemoan that fact or not right but like this novel seems like at every step of the way, all of these, like every character is thinking about every single power structure that they can. And that is like affecting their choice of mm-hmm. actions. Like it's both affecting the like total move set that they have available to them and then affecting what move they choose to use out of that move set in ways that are like, you know, make sense to each character. And I, I don't know, it just, it felt so natural to me. And it's some of what, you know, we talk about this like ultra unreal fiction or whatever. I think it's one of the things I like about that kind of fiction is that I think a lot of it does grapple a lot with these questions of class and power structures. And the fact that it's not like you have power over someone else and it's a one way street, (laughs) you know, it's like, no, it's a lot more complicated than that shit. And you know, I, I, this book just did that very well. And interestingly,
0: I think one of my favorite things about the book is the, uh sympathy that it had for everybody and mm. the sympathy that it had for having sympathy for like taking a sympathetic position for yeah. being sort of fundamentally interested in getting along with everybody rather than like defeating your enemies right the fact that the um the waste people at the end choose like vote <laughs> to save everyone else is a very you know i think it it would be easy to, um, make fun of a story for taking that choice at the end of the story. You know what I mean? Like, is it's sort yeah. of, it's a little pat, maybe it's a little like too good to be true. Um, I mean, my problem with it is it's
1: a little I, bit like pro respectability politics. Like, I had some like eh about that, but but go ahead, go
0: ahead. Yeah, no, I I I think that the 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 there are there are it's not a perfect handling of of the situation but like i am very sympathetic to coming down on the side of let's not kill everyone <laughs> <laughs> even if we do want to force them to change <laughs> right, right um fair the other thing that's worth pointing out when it comes to power relations is that there's nobody in the government who does anything bad <laughs> Oh. oh, interesting! <laughs> right, if you think about right. it, if you think you're about right. it, all the people that do bad things are not in the government,
1: <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, Worth being aware of. <laughs> yeah, and the like,
0: mayor or whatever—is that what they call him? Do they call him the mayor in English or the? Yeah, there's both a mayor and a director. Oh, not uh, not director um, Lynn or whatever, not him. Right, the, the mayor guy. Okay. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. The mayor is 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 very good. Yes, the mayor is very good and cares about the people. He sure does. He cares about the people.
1: <laughs> Director, on the other hand, like Director Lin is in like a well, government he's in the clan, position. right? The clans
0: are bad. The clans, right? Are but he's also in the government position. Sure, but low level, and you know, I mean, he got that way because of the clans. I mean, that's right, you know, okay. there's corruption in the government, perhaps, but okay, it's not that okay. high.
1: Not that high up. <laughs> okay. Limited.
0: Oh, so director is lower than mayor. Oh yeah. yeah. I the might also just not understand. Is, the, oh, oh, oh yeah. No, the mayor is way above him. Yeah, for sure.
1: Oh shit. Okay, I did not get that from the yeah. novel. I, I, that I I was uh, my understanding was they were sort of like parallel or, or orthogonal or something like that.
0: You remember? Oh. Yeah, yeah. But anyway. Um. Yeah. I mean, like there. I think it's interesting to me because like this book sort of clearly has there are a bunch of sort of biases that I find to be very present in this book. Um. Yeah. That, you know, are kind of inevitable. Like I it's hard for me to imagine the book not having them and getting published. Right. right. Um, and so like I don't I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to have bias. I mean, like it's just inevitable, I guess.
1: Well, no, and that's why we talk about them. It's not to be right. like, oh, the book is bad because it's problematic. Right. But like, hey, let's talk about the biases and be realistic about them.
0: Right. The other one, of course, is the fact that there are very few women in the book. Yep. And when they do exist, they are sometimes the MacGuffin or they are damseled, Mm -hmm. Right. Um, They
1: are the, like their pain is the like, you know, motivation for the like male characters to do thing. Right. And I think Um, like, and again, there are times where that's kind of lampshaded. There are times where that's kind of like called out as like, Oh, that's what Kaizen's doing. But like, Mimi doesn't need him to do that necessarily or like it's going to be helpful for her but it's like his motivation not what she wants like yeah. there's times where it's like more or less like like the book I think is more or less aware of Yeah, the vibe doing.
0: that I get from this book is that it wasn't it was like trying and yeah, like I yeah. think what's happening is that it's sort of trying and not succeeding completely rather right. than that it's not a book that's ra- ra- I would say it is not a book that is like not interested in This stuff It it is interested in it It's just I don't think it hits the right I'm like you know I
1: fully understand Like that People have different weightings Of like how much they care Whether it's trying or not But like for me The fact that it like Seems to clearly Be making an effort Is And the way in which It's making that effort is sort of like ex- not excuses, but like means that like what could in other circumstances ruin a book for me, like it barely sort of registers as like, Oh, that's a little bit of a Nick, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. like, I, I feel like in so much as intention actually comes out on the page and like changes what you write, like that kind of intention actually can make a difference to me, um, in, 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 in novels in particular. Um, cool. Yeah. The- do you want to talk a little about cyberpunk? Yeah. I've been thinking about this and like kind of how to talk about this stuff. Like there's this whole unexamined thing of like that we, not like that we haven't talked about yet. Well, I guess the piece, what I want to, the way I want to like bracket this discussion is less as cyberpunk as a whole and more about prosthetics in general. Ah. Cause I was really interested in the way that this book treated prosthetics And from prosthetics also like, you know, sort of it's politics or themes or whatever. I'm not exactly sure, but sort of like, you know, there's this theme in the book of like, both like, do we rely too much on technology? But also on the other hand, like is fully rejecting technology, the like right thing to do, right? Like, Kaizong's mm-hmm. parents, for instance, are like fundamentalist mm-hmm. Christians who believe that like you must reject technology. Like that is part of their belief system. Um, you know, it's like you get the sense they might be like Jehovah's Witnesses or something along those lines. Um and so that so that's like a really like interesting, like, you know, it is this position that is presented by the book with like some amount of sympathy but also does not feel like the book being like this is the proper position to take right and in the same way like you get these characters who are you know rich and privileged in all these different ways just like changing their bodies parts willy-nilly and doing it in this very kind of like, you know, what I can only call kind of decadent way. And the book seems to be, and Kaizong in particular, and through him, maybe the book seemed to be very judgmental of that decadence, but it's not clear to me that they're actually like that. The book is actually judgmental of like using these prostheses at all. Like in fact, you know, and this is a thing like in, in so much as like a lot of cyberpunk, there's this video I'll link to by this, like, YouTuber, uh, Yasminsky, I think is his name, where he talks about cyberpunk. And so I, I won't get too deep into this. If you're curious, like, that's a better resource than me. But, like, a lot of cyberpunk is really squeamish about this, right? Like, we talked about the... Um, Cyberpunk 2020, the role playing game. Oh, I
0: knew this was going to come up. And like yes.
1: one of the factors of this role playing game, and like granted, this is interesting game design. It's like useful balancing, but it's bad politics. Is that as you add prostheses onto yourself, as you change yourself using these cyberpunk kind of tropes, these cyberpunk technical elements to the game, you lose what's called humanity points. And the more humanity points you lose, the like eventually your like character essentially like dies or like goes insane and like you can no longer play as that character anymore. And so it's this thing where like, okay, on the one hand, like this is used in the game as a balancing mechanic. So you can't just like become super powerful right away by just like changing all of your body parts to like weapons. But then on the other hand, it's telling this really like, you know, kind of particular thing of like, oh, if you change yourself, you're less human, right? Like that is like, and stuff like in some of the rule books like you can get sex change and like that also loses humanity points right like there's all this stuff of like you know and again like people like some people need prostheses like there are people who like don't have full use of their yes, arms and yes, these prosthetic for the record, arms that
0: is a bad opinion cyberpunk 2020 <laughs>
1: right exactly like like this is this is stuff that like you know having a prosthesis does not make you less human no <laughs> But a lot, and like not just Cyberpunk 2020. And again, like I'll yes, cite this, r- this YouTube, but like a lot of stuff. this represents a lot of cyberpunk. This is one of the things like we've talked about, like I like referencing role-playing game rule books because they tend to really distill the like tropes mm-hmm. of these genres. And like, this is a common theme, even in the sort of like, you know, better cyberpunk, whether it's like, you know, I, again, I haven't read Gibson, but like, you know, I know that Neil Stevenson does this right? Like I know that this kind of like attitude towards like, Oh, like changing yourself is actually is bad actually is common in a lot of cyberpunk. And then you get, you know, the kind of like maybe post cyberpunk or like stuff after it, like the matrix, for instance, where like it handles these things a lot better. So there's also stuff that like, you know, and again, the matrix written and directed
0: by two trans women, like, Oh, I wonder why it would be better about these things. (laughs) Um, But this is an old cyberpunk thing. And indeed, it's like one of the I think one of the more central tropes of cyberpunk is the idea that like if we're combining ourselves with machines, what are we giving up in the process? And, you know, you can have better or worse, you know, approaches to to tackling that question or to investigating these themes. Right. But like there have been a lot of worse approaches that people have taken over the years.
1: And so as I've been thinking about this novel, like I've been sitting with these scenes, like for instance, the scene where, you know, Kaizen's roommate's girlfriend dies and all that's mm-hmm. left is her prosthesis, And like, you know, earlier in that scene, you know, he is being very judgmental about the way in which they're using these prostheses and that they're like changing them willy nilly. And to him, this is like clear example of like, yes, they have lost humanity through like the use of these prostheses. And then it see the book seems to do this thing of like, then at the end, he re- like, or a- at the end of that scene realizes like, oh no, to them, like, these were pieces of themselves. And like, while I am being really squeamish about this, it's also like, they're going to like bury the prostheses of these women in lieu of their, but not even in lieu of their bodies, because that's the part of their bodies that survived because to them, they are their bodies. And it's this really interesting thing where like, I feel like this novel is maybe like adjacent to, or maybe even like really like, grappling with characters who have these kind of like ableist takes about (laughs) like prostheses and about like humanity and like the way in which like you know using them like makes you lose your humanity but like i i don't know it felt like a very interesting kind of like like it felt less like the novel really coming down on the side of like oh prosthetics are bad and more the novel coming down on the side of like people can use them in different ways. And some of those ways might like reflect like their like your personal moral failings or not. But like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this, but like, it seemed to me that like, there's this thing that the novel is grappling with explicitly. And again, it seems to be trying, like, I don't know if it's fully succeeding, but it seems to be trying to me in a way that's a lot better than most cyberpunk does, Mm -hmm. but it's still there as an element. And like, So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. What were
0: your thoughts on this? I wonder if you were thinking about this at all while reading the novel. I thought about it a lot. I was thinking about it, and I and I think I have a pretty similar, you know, take to you, which is that I feel like the book was kind of on the line between, um, you know, having characters who had problematic views, and then itself potentially having those views and like it was unclear to me sometimes like w- whether i thought it was more the novel or more the characters or or both or neither or, or what right um i think you know in the end i i totally agree with you and i think that the novel was trying and like i don't think it completely succeeded but i think that the the, the attempt was a worthwhile attempt because i think ultimately you know it it, ultimately there is a real question um there you know for for people who may not want uh, like for people who do want or need um to change their body Mm -hmm. then being able to change their body and having the freedom to do so is great for for people who do not want and do not need to change their body being forced to change their body is bad Mm-hmm. And and there, there there's an mm-hmm. interesting, you know, thing where, like, sometimes those two situations get conflated. Yeah. Sometimes there's a there's an idea, like, if you imagine a situation where, like, consumerist culture has taken over, like, body modification, like, to a really serious degree, mm-hmm. and thus there's pressure to change your body to fit in or to succeed, this already exists in East Asia. I mean, in Korea, plastic surgery, for instance. In South Korea, plastics—and right. in China and in Japan— but like, especially in South Korea, plastic surgery is incredibly uh, widespread relative to its presence in other countries. Um, I remember I, when I was in uh, university in China, I uh, we had one discussion, one class period about plastic surgery, and the teachers, who were all young Chinese women in their twenties, um, the teachers uh, asked us, the students, uh, if we thought, well, they were probably actually older than twenties, but anyway, <laughs> mm-hmm. if they asked us, the students, if we thought that what we thought about whether plastic surgery was necessary to compete or not. Mm, mm-hmm. And in general, the students who were all American, at least in that class, um, the students all said, well, no, people shouldn't have to get plastic surgery. You know, it's, it's better, you know, if you can, um, you know, not feel forced to do that or whatever. And the teachers were all like, yes, sure. But what if you have to? <laughs> what if you want a better job? right and you (laughs) need to be prettier too right 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 and so i mean you know they had kind of already my my take was that they had already internalized the reality that like it was just necessary for some people Mm -hmm. um even if those people didn't want to it was like too late to not want it like you just had to in some cases interesting Um,
1: yeah it's too late to not want it that is too that's a very. It's funny you bringing that up because that's that's really interesting. Like the thing I was thinking about was the deaf community in America, which I know something about because my grandmother was deaf and like a founding member of the deaf community in Alaska and all this stuff. But like there's this very real thing that happens where. So there's a lot of different kinds of deafness, like deafness can be caused by a lot of different things some forms of deafness are congenital. Like if you, if your parents are deaf, then your child is more likely to be deaf. Um, There are also deaf community, like the deaf community is a thing. Like sign language is a thing. Like people who are deaf tend to know each other, tend to marry each other. It's obviously like a tends to kind of situation, but like they do. And there's this big question in the deaf community because some of the congenital deafness is quote unquote, curable if it's caught at a young enough age and like like through cochlear implants is the kind of like word that you hear over and over again as this like way to help a child who is born deaf not have to be deaf their whole life but again like it has to be done at a certain age it like degrades with time And also, just like development happens in certain ways. A child, like we've been talking about language a whole lot. Like, children learn language young, you lose your ability to learn language as you grow older. If you want a child to like speak English, perfectly their whole life to like natively acquire English, they need the cochlear implant young enough such that they can acquire that language. However, that also means they are less likely to speak the language of their parents, ASL, right? Like they are less likely to also acquire ASL natively. And it becomes this big question in the deaf community of like, again, this is why it's like quote unquote cure, like doctors and medical professionals will often like really insist that this happen and get really upset at deaf parents who do not want their children to like have become, to become not deaf, to have cochlear implants um, because they're like, no, like deafness is a disability and like we have the ability to cure it. So like you, we must do that. Whereas from the deaf community's perspective, like no deafness is just like this thing we live with, but it's fine. And it gives us like the, you know, Ability to understand sign language and to be, to do things together. And like we have this shared culture because of it. And I think you get into some of these questions of like, you know. And this is why, to me, I think some of this, some like I often find the conversation around like ableism and prosthetics to be a little bit like, oh, well, prosthetics are always good, or like we can't ever, you know, and it's like, yeah, but there's also, there's all these different forms of community and of ability. And it's really like, I feel, and granted, you know, not a member of the deaf community, but I have a lot of family who are like, I often feel that it's more important to like respect the wishes of the community as opposed to like determine from on high, like, Oh no, like prosthetics good or bad. Right. And like that to me was, you know, I'm not going to say that the book was fully grappling with all of this, but it did to me feel like, like it had a more nuanced view than prosthetics good or prosthetics bad. And it had a view that is, you know, I mean, part of what I liked about is I've just been thinking about a lot of this stuff a lot since reading the book. Like if, if nothing else, it did a really good job of getting me like thinking about all of these questions again. Um, and in a way that didn't, it felt to me ever like deny the humanity of like
0: anyone in particular. Right. Which is also important. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's, it's, these are subtle and difficult topics. And so to say that the book was ambitious, but didn't succeed is not to say that it was bad at all, because, mm-hmm. you know, not completely succeeding at like totally, you know, decoding a very subtle topic is like, right. It's like normal life, man. That's like, right. Exactly. Every day.
1: <laughs> right. And again, I mean, like, I feel like I see people who are like, Trying really hard and even like members of like one community and it's like, ah, but I see like what you're saying as like also kind of denying that this other community exists. And I think it's really important to like for all of us to be allies to each other (laughs) as opposed to be like, well, I need it this way. So it has to be this way for everyone. Big tent. So, yeah, I don't know. This is just, again, I don't have. I feel like some of this stuff, it's like, oh, I have this thing I want to say for this is like, I've just been like noodling on this since reading the book. And I appreciate that, like, it's there. And I wanted to, like, call it out a little bit. Now I, th- I want Chinese noodles. <laughs> right. Um, I think those are all the big thematic things I wanted to talk about. How do you feel about AI? AI?
0: Oh, man, I want you to start the conversation. Gotcha. <laughs> AI, artificial intelligence. If you didn't know what that meant, you probably did. AI, Captain. <laughs> so, um, I you know, I think i made won. that pun, pun before on this podcast.
1: <laughs> God. Many apologies. I
0: think we, we, we've talked about our, our feelings about AI a little bit before on this podcast. I think mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of, like, overly simplified discussion of AI, especially in science fiction community in America, and I think that this book did a pretty good job of, like, having a different take. Than the kind of standard take. Um, The standard take very often is that either there's two. Either AI is all powerful and evil, or AI is all powerful and omnibenevolent. (laughs) And you know, in either case, um, we just can't get any traction on it. The interesting thing about this book was that it kind of it presented an AI that was very powerful. Um, It also wasn't clear what it was like mm-hmm. it, it wasn't like the the characters and the and the and the and the maybe even the thing itself in the book didn't know what was going on a lot mm-hmm. of the time and like so the that by itself is like a really co- good move to make i think when you're talking about stuff like this the mm-hmm. idea that like there isn't some like you know secret team well there is a secret team there the idea that the secret team of researchers uh doesn't actually know what they've done <laughs> is like a really good idea right <laughs> and like the the trick then is that you have to make sure that you you don't make it into this like the, you know the trope then of course is that it's like this just like pure evil it's it's or it's skynet it's like humans didn't mean to create skynet and then they did and it was too late and took over the world this isn't quite skynet it, it maybe is gesturing in that direction certainly satellites are involved and therefore you're kind of makes you think of it better. oh but, huh, interesting i actually
1: didn't think of that but yeah yeah, yeah you're right but like um i did you know, love I, the libertarian satellite yeah that was cool thing. that was, that was pretty cool neat.
0: that was good anarchy dot cloud <laughs> right, right. <It's>
1: like, <laughs> but also like it's dot cloud because it's in the cloud like it's above the yeah. cloud.
0: <laughs> the chinese name is is somewhat different but the pun the pun the cloud pun works too nice I mean. but uh <laughs> i mean still it's still anarchy cloud but it's anyway whatever right, right. um So I I guess I think the AI in this book is sort of, you know, the cool thing about it is that it's not clearly created. It doesn't have this like very clear through line from like scientist brain to like perfect accomplished Mm -hmm, construction. mm -hmm, It's messy, mm -hmm. which I think is a thing that it makes sense to think about. But I still think that, you know, that said, this is a vision of AI that does not compete with Ted Chang's in the um, the life cycle of software objects in Exhalation. I think Ted Chang's view of AI in that is a more sophisticated and interesting take. And this, I kept thinking, I kept comparing the two and it's sort of like, eh. Interesting. You really love that story.
1: I was not, I, I don't necessarily agree. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. You know, so I, beyond Ted Chang, the... the weirdly the thing i kept thinking about was um semiosis like the plant the plant yeah,
0: yeah. well that i think also is a maybe a, a more nuanced view right but but like
1: that was that was actually the one i was thinking of and and feeling like both a more nuanced view but also there's something about the kind of like unknowableness of this ai that I think is mm-hmm. like, it is done really well. Like one of the things I really like about Mimi one slash whatever it is, like what, and that's the quote, like part of it is like slash whatever the fuck it is. Cause no one including itself actually knows what it is. Like it's a, the whole conception of around identity yeah. for this thing is yeah. like, real messy like it's it's self-conception of identity the way its identity changes over time the way like different things kind of plug into its identity whether that be like Mimi's brain but also Mimi's mind which is you know somewhat different from the brain in some ways and then also like it is this like network that is both exists within and on top of her brain. Like it's both, it's a network that uses her brain, but also has its own processing power, like on top of the brain. And so in that way, like it and Mimi are like intertwined and like some of the processes that happen will be the same. And some of them will be different for both of them. And they can have some like more or less like introspection into the other person or the other things mind. I just like, man, all of that was, so cool and i just love that we don't get like a pat explanation for like what it is what its motivations are what it's do like no all of that's a little bit unknowable
0: yeah i i I completely agree like you know i i think the messiness is is great i think Mm -hmm. the especially the messiness of what it wants that is my favorite single thing about how it's portrayed the only thing that that bothers me a little about it is the sense in which it's kind of like there's a little bit of like Oh, it's like there's this fear of it, um which I think is not inherently bad like if it, oh it's it's sort of like the fear of 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 um of semiosis plant like it's not inherently bad to fear that you can totally understand why people would be afraid of that thing. like yeah. it's easy to understand, but the not investigating that fear becomes an issue. I think like in Semiosis, there's a lot of investigation over the whole book about like what are some different kinds of relationships we could have with this thing? You know, how do we really feel about it? Like maybe this character won't change their mind, but maybe this other character will or whatever. And yeah. and like Mimi One, Mimi One certainly characters sort of like learn more about it and like change their minds about it, but like where they end up at the end of the book is like that was scary. We should kill it. <laughs> and it's just like, eh, I, I'm, I'm unsatisfied with that because like, yeah, there's more complexity there that you could have dealt with more. You know, that's fair. That's fair. You know, I hadn't thought of that. But yeah, I mean, at the end
1: it is. It's like, oh, this thing is scary. So we must kill it. Like that is the answer that the
0: characters in the books have. And yeah. in a way, in a way, it's almost too revolutionary to let it live because the revolutionary stuff cannot be allowed that is like the red line that that a, that a Chinese science fiction book takes. Well, maybe yeah. they could cross it in some way, but I don't – I think that's a very difficult thing to publish. Right. And so, so I wonder to what extent, you know, that might be involved in this also, but – Right.
1: Well, and, you know, when you talk of, like, questions of, like, censorship like this, obviously, like, to what extent is that, like – Censorship versus self-censorship versus just like, well, that's the yep. world that Stanley Chan grew up in, and so that's how he feels. Right. Like and like what yeah, are the differences between all of those maybe things? Maybe
0: he, he's yeah, maybe he is just afraid personally, and like he right. thinks the proper view of something like that, which would be fundamentally revolutionary, is to fear it. Right. Because it would end up so badly for so many people. Well, and, and he, perhaps
1: that's even right. You know, I think like he works for Google or worked at least for Google. So I'm sure he's actually thought about this stuff
0: in a very practical way. Way as well yeah that's 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 a good thing maybe to to end on with regard to this book which is that like it's 10 minutes in the future it's not that far yeah it's really not <laughs> there's <laughs> no, a lot it's, of it real takes place in here. like
1: the early 2020s or something like that like well, it's even not 100 percent like, clear but like yeah.
0: yeah whenever it's supposed to take place like the stuff in the book is not far no
1: and it's even closer now than when the book was originally written And like, it doesn't feel like we're moving in a path that's like that far away from getting
0: to it eventually. (laughs) Yeah. And even if, as I do, you, you think that like, you know, like truly sort of conscious sentient AI creatures are like not happening anytime soon. That's basically, you know, that's the, the narrative equivalent of, of magic. A lot of people don't believe that. I do believe, I think it's, it's, it's just magic. It's like having wizards in your book, but like, even if you don't believe that like the idea that like some powerful algorithm can like hurt you yeah of course it already can mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you know <laughs> yeah so the final
1: thing before we we wrap up that i just wanted to talk about was like the very very ending of the book like the 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 you know post-climax kaizong is on the like you know research vessel in alaska and like finally like
0: comes across one of these trash islands i forgot alaska alaska connection i forgot
1: i guess i mean sure right Uh, that's i'm i'm interested in the fucking trash islands well i just got bingo so (laughs) you did get bingo (laughs) (laughs) but like i don't know the the very end of like you have this whole book of this like you know This like kind of metaphorical trash island, waste island, like this island where like waste is processed. And then you get to this island that is like literally itself like a floating island made of trash with some sort of like some sort of inhabitants living on it. I I mean, I love the like hint of the inhabitants, just like the, the way that I don't know, like it, it's not like there's no, there's nothing like intellectual here necessarily, but there was this like intense feeling and that's a, you know, that's a thing this book does did really, really well for me. And I think it's a testament to both Stanley Chan and Ken Liu, which is that like the book has so much feeling. Like the book just feels fucking great. Like it felt great to read. I yeah. or or at times it felt awful to read, but in a very conscious, like it's meant to feel awful kind of way. Like it's a very like emotional powerhouse kind of book. And yeah, to its benefit and like that ending was this one that just like fucking it's like a gut punch like it just has this feeling of like there's so much more that we don't understand and uh, I don't know I loved it I just really really liked it yeah I liked it It it's a good book that's all I just wanted to like say that about the very ending (laughs) nice so with that uh let's see next month will be well kind of this month since we're like kind of a week <laughs> behind but we also have five weeks in october so it's fine we have plenty of time um we'll be reading uh what is it zone one by colson, by whitehead. colson whitehead um really i've never read anything by him before so i'm really looking forward to it um should be great I'm looking forward. Yeah. So we'll have two episodes on that plus some sort of bonus episode in between. We'll, we'll figure out the, the, the schedule right now is like, uh, is the pin tweet on our Twitter. So if you, you know,
0: want to find us at spectology pod on Twitter, you can <laughs> see the entire schedule. Indeed. Indeed. And thanks to, uh, Noah Bradley and, and WJ as always. Right. Our um, work in music. Uh, if you want to email us spectology at gmail.com,
1: uh, I do the Twitter and email, so I'll get any of that stuff. Uh, and thanks to everyone for listening this. And thanks to you, Matt. This was fun. Like I loved this. This was yeah, like this, this, such this, 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 was this great, world.
0: This was a great choice. I loved doing this book. I think that's one thing I haven't said so far, which is I absolutely, I was so thrilled and I totally loved the experience of like reading the book in Chinese and, and, and then going to the translation and back and forth and, it was a really cool thing for me. This is the fastest I've ever read a Chinese novel. And so it was like a challenge for me to do it in this amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a real a real thrill. Like, it was amazing. I mean, I, I loved it. Um, that's, that's awesome. I love the experience of it. Um, it was great. I mean, so, I, lo- I, love, thank you. I
1: love both hearing that and also, like, it was super fun to get to do this in this way. Like, I hope we can, you know... Not immediately, but at some point in the future, do it again, because it was like a really fun way to get to like read and talk about a novel and like the different like slopes and feelings of the novel. So totally. I learned some cool words, too. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, very cool. Yeah, thats uh, how you say fiberglass. Uh, that's a good word. <laughs> that is a good word. Next, <laughs> next time you're on a boat,
1: you'll know. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, thanks to everyone for listening, and yeah, we'll we'll be back next week with the Zone One pre-read. Peace out. Bye, everyone.